Well, good morning. And uh, a, uh, let me say again, the joy of uh, being with you at worship on this Lord's Day. To be able to lift our praise to God with the people of God it has been a great joy this morning as it has been to be with you all weekend. I'd like to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I'd like to read to you, and you're hearing the Word of God, from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, as we conclude our series of Hallelujah, what a Savior, the glory of God in the atonement. 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Let's pray together one more time. Our Father in heaven, we pray that once again as this, your word, is proclaimed to us, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that your name would be hallowed. The Lord, your purposes would be made clear to us and that your glory would be seen in your accomplishment of your purposes. And then I pray particularly uh, this morning that these, your people, would be equipped for your mission in the part of your world that you have placed them in. Lord, would you lift up our eyes and hearts to see the glory of your grace and the grandeur of your mission in the world. Lord, as you have assured us of the accomplishment of your purposes in your atoning for your people, would you now, Lord, inspire us and equip us to have a vision and passion as wide as your purposes. And we ask it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Scripture is not afraid that too many people will be saved. Those are actually the words of the great Dutch Reformed theologian Herman Bovink. And he concluded with that statement as he, as a, at the end of what I read you last night about that statement on Jesus' atonement providing actual salvation, not just potential salvation. As Bavink argues that Isaiah 53 and other passages uh, teach us that Jesus died for the many, he would remind us that he died for the many. And Scripture 
is not afraid that too many people will be saved. I start there because sometimes when we become convinced of the Bible's teaching on the sovereignty of God and salvation, sometimes what happens in our hearts and in our minds is that we can severely limit our vision and our aspiration for the extent of God's saving work. And then sometimes what whole churches and whole movements do is impute that limited desire onto God. It goes like this, because God is sovereign in the plan of salvation, because He has chosen His elect before the foundation of the world. And as we learned last night from our message, because God sent Jesus to die particularly for the elect whom He'd chosen, we then from our hearts reason that God's desire to save people must be quite limited and quite narrow. And so then our conscience can become excused for a small and narrow desire and vision for who might receive the benefits of Jesus' atonement. Have you heard the term presbyopia? It's actually an eye disease, which I find the term quite interesting as a Presbyterian. Presbyopia has to do with the hardening of the lenses in your eyes so that your vision actually becomes kind of narrow and your vision becomes narrow, rather small. Now, I think as a Presbyterian, that too often describes us. We sometimes have presbyopia. Now, it's not just the Presbyterians. Remember the story of William Carey when he got the passion to take the, the, uh, take the gospel to India and um, the, in the Baptist convention in which he was trying to stir up to send those missionaries and somebody stood up and said, Mr. Carey, if God wants to save the heathen, he doesn't need our help. Sometimes our convictions that God, about God's sovereignty can get distorted into a conviction, in, into a convenience that we do not have to have an expanded aspiration and vision for all people to experience the salvation of our God. Well, the text that we've just read should correct our hearts and our practices from any limited vision and desire for the lost, which attempts to use the truth of the definiteness of the atonement as an excuse. This text tells us, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 to 7 tells us that because God desires all people to be saved and Christ gave Himself as a sacrifice, it says, for all people, we should be praying for all people and we should be preaching and sending people to preach to all people. In other words... If we are actually glory, glorifying God in the atonement He provided in Jesus, we should be praying for the world. We should be praying for all people, preaching to all people, sending people to preach to all people, because Jesus died for all people. I think that's the message we get when we interpret this text in, in the context, first of all, of its pastoral situation. And then we see it in the context of Paul's mission and message. And then we actually look at the logic of the text itself. We understand the point of the text is this. There is not one group, not one class, not one tribe, not one nation of people in which God does not desire the salvation of many and from which Christ has not ransomed the people for God. God the Savior's desire to save sinners is not limited to a few from one nation of people, and Christ's atonement is not limited to a few from one nation of people. Christ, listen to this, 
Christ died for an innumerable multitude of people from every tribe and every tongue and nation. And we see that in this passage, first of all, if you'd notice with me, the, the call to prayer for all people, the call to prayer for all people. We find that in verses 1 and 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, perhaps you might know about the background of the first letter to Timothy. Paul has sent his disciple Timothy to Ephesus, which was a strategic church in, that, in the area. If you go back and you read Acts chapter 19 and 20, you understand that Ephesus probably represented the culmination of Paul's pre-imprisoned ministry. And actually, if you read the book of Acts, Acts chapter 19 and 20, it'll tell you that all Asia heard the word of God as the church was planted in Ephesus and people were sent from Ephesus all the way up the Lycus Valley into other parts of the province. So this is a strategic kingdom church that uh, is Ephesus. And Paul has sent his beloved and trusted apprentice Timothy to put the church back in order in terms of its doctrine and practice. It's striking then, I think, to notice that the first priority he places upon him in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, the first priority he places upon him is prayer. See, we can forget this in the mission of the church. As we seek, as we must, to be accurate about the gospel, to define the gospel, to defend the gospel. And we aspire to see our neighbors and to see the nations come under the blessing of Christ's atoning work. Sometimes we can forget that a primary means for extending the finished work of Christ to one heart after another, to our neighbors, to the nations. Sometimes we can forget that a primary means is to actually lead the mission from our knees. It's prayer. John Calvin, not unconvinced as he was of the sovereignty of God and salvation and the definiteness of Christ's atonement, he was fully aware of the risk of neglecting the relationship of prayer to preaching the word to the world. John Calvin wrote this. We shall lose all our labor bestowed upon plowing, sowing, and watering unless the increase come from heaven. Therefore, it shall not suffice to take great pains in teaching unless we require the blessing at the hands of the Lord that our labor may not be in vain and unfruitful, says Calvin. Hereby it appeareth that the exercise of prayer is not in, vain, not in vain commended unto ministers of the word. John Calvin is followed in this by none other than John Owen. John Owen said this, I believe that no man can have any evidence in his own soul that he doth conscientiously perform any ministerial duty toward his flock who doth not continually pray for them. Let him preach as much as he will. Let him visit as much as he will. Let him speak as much as he will. Unless God doth keep him in a spirit of prayer in his closet and family for them, he can have no evidence that he doth perform any ministerial duty in a due manner. Or that what he doth is accepted with God. I speak to them who are wise and understanding in these things. What's Cal what are Calvin and Owen saying? Calvin and Owen are saying, while we prioritize the preaching of the word and all the duties that are imposed, that are, that are entrusted to the, the pastors, if you're not praying and asking the blessing of God from heaven upon those, your labor can be fruitless. 
Well, the apostles knew this. The apostles learned it early, and they applied it early in their ministry in the church. If you've got your Bible, would you just turn with me for, it to, for a moment to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, as we come to the story of that fledgling church that is being so blessed by the fullness of the Holy Spirit that it is multiplying exponentially. A growing spirit-filled church in Jerusalem, and because the church is growing, it encounters an organizational problem that then becomes a relational problem. Exponential growth in the church without an adequate system to meet the material needs of its needy members led to the accusation of a relational problem, that the Hebrew leadership of the church was prejudiced against the Hellenist members of the new community. We read the story in Acts chapter 6, and if you just follow with me down six chapter, uh, Acts chapter 6, 1 to 7. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve, that's the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, watch this, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. Now watch. But we will devote, that word means work at, dedicate ourselves to, discipline ourselves in as our job. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenaeus, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now watch the result of this strategic decision. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The crisis created a risk that those who had been entrusted with the stewardship of the word, the apostles, would be distracted from their primary priority in order to ameliorate a false accusation and alleviate a real need. And in the wisdom of, the, wisdom of God, the apostles addressed the uh, crisis through the appointment of a new class of officers. And they continued to prioritize prayer and the word, prayer and the word. What sometimes is overlooked is the pride of place that was maintained for the work of prayer, chapter 6, verse 4, as the apostles prioritized their duties. I recall preaching on this text when I was pastoring a church and there was a noted biblical scholar who was, pres who was present. He was actually a Pauline scholar. And um, I remember I continued to emphasize as I was preaching the sermon, I'd emphasize the word in prayer, the word in prayer, the word in prayer, the word in prayer. And in his, his typically gracious way, he came to me after the sermon and he said, uh, prayer and the word. The order in the text is prayer and the word. See, what we do is we flip the first all the time in our minds because we rightly prioritize the preaching of the word. We can unwittingly deprioritize the ministry of prayer that is intended to fuel the ministry of the Word. And flipping of those priorities in our minds and hearts becomes flipped and then forgotten in our practice. 
Why am I pointing this out to you when we're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 2? Because the apostles saw it as their first priority and pastoral duty to be dedicated to make their work in prayer. So then when the apostle Paul sends his apprentice to this strategic church to get it back on track in doctrine and in practice, he says, first of all, I urge prayer. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people. Essentially, with all those different words for prayer, what he's saying is all kinds of biblically prescribed prayers. All kinds of scripturally directed and defined praying. But then would you notice that he's to, he's to make all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people. The first group of people he applies this first priority to are the people in high places of authority, as your pastor so faithfully did in his prayer this morning. Kings and all who are in high positions. Basically, what he's doing with those titles, he's covering any of the rulers and government officials that existed at any level. If I could cite Calvin once more in his commentary on this passage, he points out that this shows us what Paul has in mind that he's looking at, he's thinking about classes of men, not persons in particular. See, one of the, so here's where we come to the pastoral situation. One of the pressing problems of the church in Ephesus that it faced was a distorted teaching about God's plan. It was called a Judaizing heresy. The false narrative was that God was concerned only with saving a certain kind of people, namely the Jewish nation. And that was actually a problem throughout the New Testament churches. And you see it really vividly in the distortion, uh, uh, the distortion of God's will when Jesus preached at his hometown and synagogue, his home synagogue in Nazareth. You can go back and look at this. Luke chapter four, Jesus synagogue in the sermon made clear that his mission was not merely to the Jewish people. It was also to Gentiles. And as you read it, like the widow of Sidon outside Israel at the time of Elijah, or like Naaman the leper who was a Syrian. And the congregation, if you read it, there's a shift in Luke chapter 4 as the congregation listens to the sermon of Jesus. They go from astonishment to assassination. They want to throw him off the cliff, that precipice just outside of Nazareth. They're thrilled with what he's got to say until he says, my mission is also to the Gentiles. Same thing happens to the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 22. You can check it out on your own time. Paul got arrested on false charges and then they put him on the steps in front of the crowd in front of the Jewish leaders there. And he spoke in their language and he recited all of his tribal credentials, who he was born from, who he had studied under, what he had done for the sake of the Jewish cause. And he said, I'm a Jew educated by Gamaliel, strict about our people's customs. And they listened to him in Acts 22 until he says Christ showed up and sent him to the Gentiles. And then the crowd goes postal. Away with this man from the earth. He should not be allowed to live. You see, the pervasive problem for the New Testament churches was our people versus those people. That was the pastoral situation that, that, that uh, Timothy was dealing with in Ephesus. And then you've also got Paul's entire message and ministry that was, defi was defined as proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles. Again, if you've got your Bible, just come with me for a second to the book of uh, the letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3. 
where Paul gives us this definition of his ministry. Just listen to Ephesians chapter 3. And this will inform how we're going to understand now 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul says this, Ephesians 3.1, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God, God's grace that was given me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is, here's the heart of Paul's message that was entrusted to him. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the, of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. <coughs> Excuse me. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, watch, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, made up of Jew and Gentile, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So here's Paul's ministry. Here's the stewardship that's been given to him, specifically that he understands his job is to get the gospel to those who are outside of Israel. Paul's entire message and ministry was defined as proclaiming that the Gentiles as well as the Jews were the object of God's saving desire and Christ's redeeming work. Now come back with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. So the pastoral situation, Paul's message, and then we see the logic of the passage. Look at how it works now, and then I'm going to show you the point. The logic of the passage develops until he clinches it in verse 7. Verse 1 and 2, pray for all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people, all classes of people. Verses 3 and 4, God our Savior desires, watch all people to be saved. Verse 5, he stresses that there is one God, not multiple gods, one mediator, not multiple mediators, one mediator, Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And then the clincher who tells you, which tells you what he's thinking about in terms of all these alls that he uses. Here's how he defends and defines his ministry. Verse 7, he was appointed to be a preacher, particularly to who? The Gentiles. So here's what I want to suggest to you. I want to stress with you. The pastoral problem in back of the text, the distinct message and mission that the apostle, the apostle who wrote it, and the logic of the text, the way it develops, shows us that the point of the text is not Christ's atonement was intended for every person without exception and somehow is frustrated when they don't add faith to the equation. The point of the text is there's not one group, class, tribe, or nation of people who should be excluded from our prayers and our preaching. Because there's not one group, tribe, class, or nation of people from, who, from whom God does not desire the salvation of many and from which Christ has not ransomed a people for God. There is a multitude amongst every tribe, every tongue, every nation for whom Jesus has died. And the church's job is to pray, to go, to preach, and go get them. That's the point in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. 
So that call to prayers shows us the point. Secondly, I want you to see the confession, the call to prayer. And secondly, the confession of God's desire for all people, the confession of God's desire for all people. Once we've got that sorted out, once we've done the work that we did last night and the work that we've done now today, we have the freedom to really come to terms with our motivation in praying for all people. And let me just say, the motivation is not that Jesus provided a potential atonement and the deciding factor is what they add by their will so we have to pray for them. That's not the motivation He gives to us in the text. Here's the motivation He gives to us. Do you notice what it is? Because this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God. That's it. At least in this text. It's the right thing in God's eyes for us to do. Pray for all people, and we'll see verse 7, preach to all people. Let me say this to you. The heart of biblical religion, the heart of biblical religion is loving God, fearing God, pleasing God. It's centered on God. When God gave His people His law, He repeatedly told them that they were to do what they were to do as good and right in the sight of God. Stitched through the book of Deuteronomy. Our point throughout this weekend has been that God has done what He has done in Christ for His glory. At the heart of the ethic and religion that Christ revealed and has redeemed us for, at the heart is God. His righteous judgment, His glory, and now He says His pleasure. This was what to motivate, was to motivate and drive the person who had received Christ's benefits of his death and resurrection. I find it arresting that Paul has put it this way. He thought it was enough to motivate Timothy and the Ephesian Christians to take up the call simply to say that this is what is good and right and pleasing in the sight of God. This will meet with God's approval. This will meet with God's pleasure. He thought that was enough to motivate the Christians in Ephesus to do what he was calling them to do, commanding them to do. And I wonder how often we put things this way anymore in our contemporary church context. The contemporary church is hyper-tuned to how the culture sees and responds to our beliefs and behavior. Parents are tuned to how their children see and feel about their parenting practices. Pastors are dominated by the perceptions and pleasures of their members. Young people are ruled by what social influencers on their social networks think. How little and how seldom as Christians today is our reflex, is our benchmark, is our controlling ethic, what's right in God's opinion and what pleases God? As parents, as pastors, as church members, as Christians who work in the world. And here the Apostle Paul brings even how we pray into that assessment and tells us that the inclusion of all kinds of people in our prayers meets with God's approval and it pleases Him. Here's something else that that tells us, the way that the Apostle has just put this prayer for all people, that it's right and pleasing in the sight of God. It tells us that this whole thing is not a sideshow in God's plan. It is His pleasure. 
that Christ's redeeming work extends to all people. Remember, it was God who sent Christ, God who put Christ forward, because God so loved the world, which I take to be in the sense of all peoples, nations. Because don't miss it. Notice how he identifies God in the text. How does he identify God? God, our Savior. Now, I wonder as we seek to glorify God in our affections and in our thoughts, do we think about God that way? When we think about God, do we think of Him as Savior, our Savior? I was struck by this as I was working through the text. I think that most often when we think, hallelujah, what a Savior, we think of Jesus. And that's right, and we should, and that's correct, and we should never stop doing it. But sometimes what we can do is separate and tend to think of God as God as ruler or lawgiver or creator or as judge. And that's right, that's entirely true. But, but do we think of God as the one, who, the one who sent Jesus as Savior because He is the saving God? That's the way the apostle repeatedly identifies God in the letters to Timothy and Titus. As a matter of fact, just listen if, for a moment, if you would. He starts in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, Paul and, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. Then over in the book of Titus, when he begins that pastoral epistle to Titus, he says this, Titus chapter 1, verse 1 to 4, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Who was Paul after? The many from every nation that God had chosen. For the sake of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope and eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in His word, through the preaching with which we've been trusted by the command of God, our Savior. Throughout the pastoral epistles, this is a central way the apostle would have his churches, Christ's churches, and Timothy and Titus think about God. God, our Savior, our saving God, please don't let that slip by our attention and our affections. As these church leaders have been charged to correct the doctrine and reform the practice of the church, as they are to call the church, particularly the elders, to holiness, that's what's going on in the pastoral epistles. As they do that, a central notion of God that they are to have in their heart and mind is He's the saving God. He's Savior. He's the God who loves sinners. He's the God who's purposed and acted to rescue sinners from their sin. See, when it comes to reforming and revitalizing the church and its doctrine and practice, all that we have been learning about God putting Jesus forward for sinners doesn't get laid aside. The gospel revelation of God, rich in grace, doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves, making us what we cannot make ourselves in Jesus, is still at the heart of church change. And here, it's applied to their vision and their prayer for people beyond their people beyond their tribe, outside of their group. In other words, if I could put it this way, when a church is God-centered, when a church is reforming biblically, a church will have a heart for the nations. 
It will pray for the nations. It will be passionate about the nations. It will be preaching to the nations if it is a biblically reformed, biblically God-centered church. If you want to do what's right in God's sight, setting the church right doctrine and practice, you want to please God, you put a prayer on priority for and mission to all people. That's what's going. If I might lean back a little bit in an older Reformed tradition, the tradition that we had that started at what's called Old Princeton before the late 19th, early 20th century when Princeton was actually established, Princeton Seminary was established to train Orthodox Presbyterian and Reformed biblical pastors. The first professor was a man named Archibald Alexander. And Archibald Alexander said this, If the Christian church felt her obligations to her Lord and Redeemer as she ought, the whole body would be like a great missionary society whose chief object was to spread the gospel over the world. That's called old school Presbyterianism. Don't tell me old school Presbyterianism is dry, dusty, narrow, and not mission-minded. The second professor was a man named Samuel Miller. Here's what Samuel Miller said. When we direct our attention to the spread of the gospel, our views, our prayers, our efforts are all too stinted and narrow. We scarcely ever lift our eyes to the real grandeur and claims of the enterprise in which we profess to be engaged. We are too apt to be satisfied with small and occasional contributions of service to this, Miller said, the greatest of all causes. Instead of devoting to it hearts truly enlarged, instead of desiring great things, expecting great things, praying for great things, and nurturing in our spirits that holy elevation of sentiment and affection which embraces in its desires and prayers the entire kingdom of God. In other words, if we are glorifying God for what He has done in the atonement of Christ, through Christ, we will have large hearts and big prayers for our neighbors and for the nations. That's what those old school Reformed Presbyterian Calvinists are telling us. In other words, as we seek to deepen our understanding of Christ's atonement, as we have come to understand as we did last night, that Jesus died for His people. He got exactly what He paid for. The, the, he got the people God had chosen to give Him before the foundation of the world. As we understand that, we must also retain the desire that God has and the pleasure He has as Savior in multitudes from all people being saved and knowing the truth about Jesus. Because... If people are to be saved, there is only one way. And as we've sought to see the glory of God in the atonement, and we've said in response to this text that we have to have that great vision, that great passion for all peoples, now would you notice that the salvation that Jesus provides to every tribe, tongue, and nation is actually very exclusive. It excludes any and all people from any people who do not relate to the one God through the one mediator that the one God has provided. God the Son who came in the flesh, the man Christ Jesus. The atonement of Christ 
is limited and particular to people who believe in and worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I find it striking that precisely as the Apostle expands the church's vision for all peoples of the world, he limits the intention and application of salvation to the one way from the one God through the one mediator. An apostolic passion for the gospel to go to the peoples does not lead to a widening of the way of salvation to all faiths. I have a friend who as yet is not a Christian and we have breakfast on a regular basis. And the core, a core value of his when it comes to spirituality and faith is inclusion. An, an obstacle to their believing the Bible and, and the gospel is the exclusivity of it. And is that not the great objection to the Christian faith at present? Because the Christian faith is not affirming. It's too narrow. It's too exclusive. And the great missionary mistake has been for generations to distort the revelation of God's love for sinners into a widening of the way of salvation to embrace all people and any faith as somehow seeking God as a satisfactory way to seek God. But we've seen from Romans chapter 1 the sin problem that all people have is not that they're seeking God through their man-made worship. They're trying to suppress the knowledge of God through their man-made worship. They're rebelling against the knowledge He's given them in creation and in His Scripture and in His Son. And as God's Spirit-inspired spokesman expresses God's desire to save sinners, how it pleases God to save sinners from all peoples, He defines that salvation as coming from one God through one mediator that he himself has provided between sinful man and himself. I just returned from Israel, and if you've spent any time there, you know that the plurality of major faiths of the world are all zealously represented within about 120 feet of each other all the time, including all their various derivative sects and branches that are passionately represented and fought for. It's an amazing experience just to stand and turn in a circle and all the religions and sects that you have that are all claiming the territory all at once. And as you tour archaeological sites, you will see that right alongside ancient Israel and their worship were the pluralities of paganism. That's why they were so easily tempted to idolatry. It wasn't a philosophical, theoretical problem. Worship of a false god, worship of the true god under a false name, or a false system, or a false image, was not just a philosophical temptation. It was a daily concrete reality. We're living alongside their neighbors, their extended families, and the political rulers who held the purse and held their security. And in the midst of that pagan, plur that pagan plurality with the relational, economic, and security pressures it put on people, God revealed Himself as the Lord God who dwells in heaven and rules over creation. He reminded His people in all of that pagan plurality. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the Lord God, the Lord is one. And then He said, you're to teach that to your children. And when the apostle wrote to pastor the new covenant people of God in Corinth, surrounded by pagan temples and practices, he reminded them, he said this, 1 Corinthians 8, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet there is, for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom all things exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. 
Why do I camp there? Because the passion-affirming, pluralistic, pagan system that now surrounds the church and calls us to submit to them for our survival is not new. And too often, churches cave into it and, and compromise the glorious message of the gospel by co-opting God's desire to save people in the service of our own cowardice. And we try to do away with the narrow way in which Christ's death for sinners is, apply, is received and applied. My friends, as you work, as you walk, as you raise your families in the city that you do, in the neighborhoods that you do, in the context that you do, there is one God who created all people, who rules over all people, and to whom all people must relate according to His righteousness. It is the God, the triune God, who is revealed to us in Scripture, particularly as He is finally and fully revealed to us in His Son, Jesus Christ. So to the heart of Paul's concern, there is not a God for the Jews and a God for these people and a God for those people. There is one God and there is one mediator through whom all men must come. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. So if I've been as clear as I should be by this point in the weekend, I hope that when we read that when Christ gave himself as a ransom for all, we understand that the all refers to all peoples. Jew as well as Gentile. And just in one more verse, Paul is going to say that that was his ministry. He was commissioned a preacher and a teacher to the Gentiles. The point here is that as God reconciles all those people to himself, he reconciles them only and exclusively through Christ, who is the ransom that he has given for sin. All people from anywhere at any time who would be rightly related to the righteous God must be reconciled through Christ. So here the apostle is giving us the great gospel basis for our prayers, the great gospel basis for our mission, the great gospel basis for our preaching, for our raising up, and for our sending preachers to all people. There is one, and only one, and sufficiently one, who stands in the gap between the righteous wrath of God and sinners, Christ Jesus, our Lord. And our commission is to pray for all people and to go to all people and to preach to all people that we might get Christ to those people. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these, your people. And thank you for this, your word. And thank you for the way you have blessed us and worked amongst us in our fellowship and our worship. And, and we trust through your word uh, this weekend. And now, Lord, I pray for our, our friends, our brothers and sisters that are part of this church. Lord, I pray you keep them safe. I pray you protect them from the pagan pluralities of the world around them. I pray that you would make them fervent. I pray that you would make them faithful and under God make them fruitful in their mission to their neighbors and to the nations. And I pray particularly, Lord, for this gen next generation that they are seeking to raise up their children and their children's children. Oh God, would you convince them that there is one God 
the Father, Son, and Ho Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in whose name they are baptized. And Lord, would you keep the next generation of our children believing the gospel, living the gospel, and spreading the gospel. And then, Lord, as Pastor has already prayed, O oh God, would you give us government that in light of all of this would allow us to lead peaceful and quiet lives for the glory of God. In Jesus' name we pray.